Welcome to Drunken PM Radio. My name is Dave Pryor, and I am really psyched about this podcast. It focuses on a subject I've been spending a lot of time over the past few months researching, thinking about, and spending time talking with other thought leaders about. While the topic is something that's still on the rise, my personal opinion is that this is something that has the potential to become a very big deal as people become more aware of it. So this episode is going to focus completely on bimodal. If you're not familiar with bimodal, it's an idea that was raised by Gartner in late 2014. And the concept is rooted in the premise that in many organizations now, there's a need to have some efforts follow a more long-term, traditional approach, and some efforts that are going to benefit more from a more fail-fast-and-learn approach. While the idea of having both take place in an organization is not new, Gartner is a trusted source for many industry leaders, and the way they've presented the topic not only helps legitimize the approach, but they've also provided an explanation as to how these two approaches can coexist. So in simple plain language, the idea of a hybrid organization that embraces a traditional and more agile or innovation-driven approach at the same time is okay. That being said, one of the critical factors that many people miss at first glance, including me, is that what Gartner is saying is not that you can keep what you have and also bring the agile. What Gartner is talking about is moving from a legacy approach to a new way of working that supports what they call Mode 1 and Mode 2. Mode 1 being a more traditional long-range approach, and Mode 2 being more centered around a fail-fast-and-learn, or if you'd like, agile or innovation-driven approach. So while you can have your cake and eat it too, the only way you get to do that is if you give up the cake you're used to having. In this podcast, you're going to hear two interviews on the topic of bimodal. The first one is with Steve Elliott, the founder and CEO of AgileCraft, which recently released an update to their product that addresses the needs of a bimodal organization. And the second interview is with Dennis Stevens, the COO of Leading Agile. Now, to be completely transparent about things, I need to state up front that Dennis and I work together. I asked him to do the interview because he's deeply experienced in traditional work and Agile methods. He's been in the business for 25 years, and in addition to his work at Leading Agile, he was part of the team that helped create the PMI ACP program, and he's currently serving as the vice chair of the PMI software extension to the PMBOK. Now, before we get to the interviews, I'd like to thank ProjectsAtWork.com for their support of this podcast. Projects at Work is a community of practitioners and thought leaders breaking down barriers and building bridges to better manage projects, programs, portfolios, and teams. You can find them at ProjectsAtWork.com. And now, on to the interviews. Hey, this is Dave Pryor for Projects at Work, and we're doing a podcast tonight about bimodal and organizational agility and scaling and a lot of different topics around that area. And I'm very fortunate to have Steve Elliott, who's the CEO of AgileCraft with me. So Steve, thank you for taking time out of your evening for the interview today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So I have a lot of questions I want to ask you, but before we get into the topics of you know bimodal and scaling and all that stuff, for the folks who may not be familiar with AgileCraft yet, could you give kind of a quick overview of what, you're, what you guys do? Yeah, absolutely. So we're focused on the tooling aspect of, of scaling and how do you, how do you take uh, Agile into a large organization and make it highly visible. And so what we see is organizations struggle with many things when they're trying to culturally change to a more Agile mindset. But one of the things that's really difficult is trying to get full visibility in a more agile environment. And what, what agile to me means is we're making decisions more quickly. We're pivoting more, more quickly and having visibility through all that 
linking the business um, all the way in the strategy, all the way down to execution is what we're focused on doing. And when you take that into a large scale, it, it's imperative to have technology that lets you roll it all up and be able to make better decisions. So at Azurecraft, we, we provide a platform to help companies scale agility. Okay. And, and so just for to add some extra stuff to that, one of the things for folks who are listening that I find really appealing about what you guys do is that you know, whatever tools are using, you guys are trying to provide an environment where they can see what's going on across the portfolio with input from all these different products that they might already have invested in, right? Exactly. Yeah. So what, what we learned pretty early on is in a large organization, uh, it's not realistic in a lot of cases to expect everybody to get onto one tool. Um, a lot of a lot of different teams like different different things, or they've invested heavily in those things, or their DevOps is linked into those tools. And so, um, when we started building our technology out uh, eight years ago, we decided that to really scale agility, it meant we had to have technology that would let us sit on top of Jira, CFS, Rally, version one, HP, whatever they've got, and and be able to bring it all into one program portfolio structure. Um, in, in one platform. So in any organization that's trying to make this change, if they are a larger organization, what, what I see happen often is they've got different pockets of the company using different products and tools. And at some point they get to a state where they're trying to understand what's happening across the portfolio. And now that you've got things like um, the idea of this organizational agility or this level of organizational agility, agility coming into play, it, it seems like it becomes a little more complicated. So I wanted to, to get, your take on what, how you would define organizational agility and what, what challenges you think that specifically brings to an organization that's trying to, to scale up in terms of how it's looking at the work that it's doing from an agile perspective or maybe you know, with the traditional stuff as well? Oh, great question. What it really means is, is we, we talk about small A agility, but just being agile as an organization, not necessarily hung up on is it safe, is it less, is it scrum, is it lean? What's, what's important is can we make good informed decisions better and faster than our competitors and, and, and all of that around the technology process and building great software. So what, what organizational agility requires is that we can deal with the, the issues of scale and be able to across the organization at the team level, the program level, the portfolio level, and the strategic executive level have good information in real time so that we can make better decisions. And so some of the some of the big challenges for scale are just that. One is how can we how can we deal with the breadth of that problem? If we're talking about all the way from the team all the way up to the enterprise, you know, C level of an organization, just just communicating uh, the plan and then status all the way back up is a challenge. So that's the first big challenge we see with with scale. Um, the second one is just complexity. So if you you think of any large organization you go into. You know, if you walked in and they were all using one tool, one budgeting cycle, one way of measuring value, one methodology for roadmap and forecasting, you know, one, everybody was on the same level of maturity as far as their dev process, same delivery cadence, et cetera, then, then it would be much easier to scale agility. But we all know that that's not reality. We see all kinds of variability on how we estimate, how we do value, how we plan. And so that's the second big challenge of skills. How do we take all of that and get back to a simple way of answering basic questions like how much is it going to cost? When is it going to finish? Is it more valuable than something else that we were planning to do at all, at all levels of scale? 
So the first one is just breadth. The second one is complexity. And then the third one is, is bimodal. We're going to have, in most large organizations today, when you walk in there, um, a lot of them have, have been on an agile journey for a while. Um, but very few of them are completely agile from top to bottom where everything is purely agile, as we would all like to think about it. And so the complexity of having two different ways of thinking about how to build software, two planning mechanisms, um, always two different products or ways of tracking it creates a lot of uh, challenge when you're trying to scale. And so the question is, how can those two coexist and work together in a fashion that lets us transform in a more, in a more seamless or smooth way? Okay, cool. So uh, let's, I would like to ask you some questions about bimodal and, and, there are probably going to be a lot of people that listen to this that are just beginning to get a hint of what bimodal actually represents or what it's supposed to be. So how, how do you define bimodal? Like if you're explaining it to somebody that's not familiar with it at all, how would you describe a bimodal approach to work? Yeah. So I think, I think, you know, bimodal is, even though the term hasn't been around forever, I think people have been trying to figure out how to, how to do bimodal for quite a while. And really, Gartner coined the term and what they were, what they were trying to figure out was, you know, how can we talk about traditional development, waterfall, the rough, whatever you want to call it, and more agile ways of developing software um, side by side. And, and basically the premise that, that Gartner came out with was we need a way that the two can coexist um, in an organization and either run in mode A or in mode B, one being agile, one being more traditional. Um, we see it a little bit differently. So, you know, Mode A and Mode B, absolutely. Like I mentioned before, you can have some teams that are agile, some teams that are that are more traditional. But we also see entire portfolios running agile, and then a side by side with another portfolio in that division running traditional. We see organizations where the enterprise and the portfolio are traditional, and the programs and teams are agile. Um, and all of those, to me, are forms of bimodal. Really, it's you're you're mixing and matching. Um, agile concepts with traditional concepts. Um, you know, and I, I know none of us, you know, I think initially when, when agile was, was beginning to be brought into large scale or, you know, situations and large scale organizations, you know, I think all of us were worried about, you know, you either have to be agile or you have to be traditional. Um, and it hasn't really been a, a one or the other thing. It's been companies moving, um, parts of their organization, either, either the teams or, divisions or groups to agile, but it's been very difficult to just completely turn an ad, an organization on its head and make it completely agile. Yeah. And so the bimodal thing is just how do we, how, when, when companies are looking at how they're transforming the organization to agile. And I think, like I said before, I think most organizations have in mind that they're going to, you know, across all four layers of scale, eventually be fully agile. Um, but I also think that for a lot of them, that's still, you know, five to 10 years away. Yeah. And so the question is how do you, how do you operate in the meantime? So so do you think that the that the uh, bimodal approach is sort of a leg, I guess I sort of look at it like it's a legitim, legitimizing a hybrid model in a certain way or putting structure enough structure around it that the hybrid is not just this we're going to have to this and have to that. I mean do you, do you agree with that or do you yeah. think that it's it is something different than that? I think I think it is a little bit of hybrid um so it is, it is letting the two and figuring out ways for the two to, to exist. But the reality, what I'm seeing is that that's really what's been going on the entire time. Yeah. Um, 
and what, you know, putting a name on it, at least we're admitting that, you know, it's, it's just like with the frameworks that are out there. If you go into an organization that says we're doing safe or less and you start asking questions, you, most organizations, you pretty quickly figure out that they're doing aspects of it and there are aspects of it they're absolutely not doing. Um, and that probably goes for most methodologies. So if we can help an organization be more agile, make better decisions, drive more value with what they're building, then we've succeeded. Yeah, I think, so you just, the, the couple of things that you just said, like the, the first thing that I kind of got stuck on when you said admitting, like I think admitting that, yeah, maybe we want to go agile, but we don't know how, <laughs> like we're so big and we're so old and we've done stuff this way for so long. It's it's for a lot of organizations, they may be able to see how certain parts of it could switch to agile, but all these other parts, they don't, it's almost like they can't even see a way in which they could become agile. And admitting that maybe at least for a little while, we're going to have to have both. I think that might be a really big step. It's sort of like accepting like, yeah, you know, we, we can't do that yet. And, and, but they don't have yeah. to do the walk of shame of saying, oh, we have this, you know, uh, water scrum thing. We can't really do it. We don't know how to do it. Or we only use it for these types of things. Um, it's almost like they're being given permission to, to okay, you, you keep the stuff the way you have to now, the old way, do the other stuff the new way, and then see what happens here. So it's, I guess it's still on that maturation thing. Like it's, it's the industry and the company's trying to evolve towards a more agile state or whatever comes after that. But I think it sounded to me like you were kind of going towards it, that it doesn't really matter how you're doing it. You want to get to making the right decisions and delivering as much value as you can in, in as fast a way as possible. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think, you know, internally at Azurecraft years ago, we had a lot of heated conversations about should we, should we support an organization that is, bimodal, right? Should we bring the two worlds together or should we just not even allow that in our platform? Um, and what, you know, what it really came down to was if we can't meet them where they're at, um, you know, it's, it, most organizations can't, can't crawl run immediately in a massive organization. And so, you know, while they're, while they're crawl, walk, run, you know, going through that, that maturation, um, you know, whatever we can do to help them be more agile. And if some of it it may, it may involve doing some things that, that may make some pure agilist cringe um, in some ways, but you know, now that we have traditional teams working in agile craft side by side with agile teams and they start to see things like cycle time and lead time and stuff, that stuff resonates with them. Even though they're still doing kind of the old traditional stage gating, there's, there's concepts from agile that they appreciate. And it, it's a, uh, you know, it's a little bit of a gateway drug. If we can make better decisions faster, that's the way to go every time. So um, we just want to make sure we can give them a highly visible way to do it so they can see what's working and see what's not working. With bimodal, what I like about it is it brings, what we're trying to do is bring all the data from both worlds together in one place. And that that should help us make better decisions versus the data and the systems for those two things are in two different worlds. And, you know, we're having this intellectual battle about which one's better. If we have data, um, I feel like that will accelerate that whole conversation and make it less political. Which And I think that that is an awesome thing. And I would imagine for some on the traditional side, it's a slightly scary thing because you're, it's like you're bringing the transparency into the waterfall side of the house where, you know, people like me who come from that background, we're accustomed to taking whatever's actually happening and painting the picture that we want people to see so they hear the story that we want them to hear as opposed to, 
a more agile approach where everything's just, here's the burn down charts, here's the tracking that we're doing. There's no way to editorialize that. There's right. less places right. now, to hide. Well, I could say something controversial about the agile side too. So one, one thing I've observed, um, you know, you just mentioned several tools that the agilists use to, to be more predictable and drive, you know, be able to change directions more quickly. And that's sure. great. Um, one of the things the traditional side spends more time on up front and focused on was, was measuring value. Um, and in the agile world, we, we have ways of measuring value, just like the traditional side, but I still feel like in a lot of cases, the agile side discounts a little bit too much trying to figure out if what they're building is the most impactful. And they basically decide, look, we're going to try it. We're going to get some of it out there. And then if it doesn't work, um, we'll shift direction. That's valid. So that, that ability to pivot and shift is valid. I, I fully support that. I think that's why agile is a, is a great way to go. But, uh, but there, there could also be a little bit more um, up at the portfolio level on the, on agile of figuring out what's valuable and putting a little bit more of a structured process into you know, what should we build? Why are we building it? And then once you start building it, is it working? Well, I, I had an aha moment um, a year or two back where, you know, I was trying to figure out why in Agile we weren't as connected to the strategy, you know, the high-level objectives of the company. And basically what it came back down to is in the traditional side, you know, it started at the top and the ideas flew down, flew down and then we'd come up with these big um, plans that would run for a long time. And, yeah, we didn't have the ability to, to pivot when we needed to. On the Agile side, though, the transformations happen bottom-up in most organizations. So yeah. we're transforming pockets of teams into Scrum or whatever we're doing, and they're still working their way up to the, to the portfolio and, and enterprise. And during all that time, they've been somewhat disconnected from the big picture. And that's, that's, I think that's where the disconnect is. It's not that, that we can't measure value with Agile um, or we can't link it back to the strategy. We very much can, but it, it's because the transformation started bottom up. A lot of organizations are just now getting there to where they can link strategy to execution with Agile. So how do you, I mean, when you guys are working with organizations that are adopting your tool and finding ways to bring all the, the information in, how do you help them understand if you're going to be looking across things at the you know, strategy level or, or enterprise or even the portfolio level, how do you kind of coach them into figuring out what data they need to be looking at to make the choices they need to make? So a lot of the, a lot of the parts are there. I guess, I guess it's a, it's a, it's a really good question. So a lot of people grapple with, you know, where do we link the, the development process, which usually is multi-layered, right? So, you know, in, in safe, it goes theme, epic feature, story task. Um, you know, there's other, there's other levels of methods. They just added capability to give you yet another level. But then the question is, where does that hinge back into the value side of the equation? Where does it hinge back to the strategy? Um, in Scaled Agile 4.0, they link it at the theme level. Um, we've seen a lot of people doing it at the epic level. Um, we've seen a lot of a lot of work around success criteria that tie to the epics and to the to the you know program increments to tie value back that way. But somewhere in there, we don't necessarily feel like there's only one way to do it. But there are definitely some key connection points in there and some key correlations that connect the two worlds. So the connecting of kind of you know the epic level and that being equivalent of a project where we can hinge on things like like, you know, intake and scoring and cash flows and budgeting, all those kind of things is, is really key. That really helps link the two worlds. So, you know, exactly how they, they do it, we see it in a lot of ways. We see a lot of 
variability. Um, and really for us, what, what we see is while you're in a transformational mode, um, someday it would be great to have everybody doing it the same way across the enterprise. But while you're transforming, we, we have to be able to give them some flexibility to do things a little differently from program to program, portfolio to portfolio, um, and even from division or strategy to, to strategy. Um, and if we can give them that, that flexibility while they're transforming, then, then we can bridge a lot of gaps. Um, the, the, the big, you know, trying to do the, uh, you know, the big wave planning where everybody flips overnight is, has been uh, a failure point for a lot of organizations. Yeah, it's, it's either it's too much too quick or, or they don't have the opportunity to understand how the impact is going to ripple throughout the rest of the company. So you guys are continuing down the bimodal path with the tool um, and with, with the idea that we are heading towards an agile state and you might need to keep your traditional stuff for a while, but you, my take on it from talking to you is that your hope is that they're going to see the light and kind of head in that direction. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think it's very fair to say. Like I said, I think intellectually, very few companies we talk to don't plan on going agile or want to go agile. It's really just a matter of how can we get there um, in a way that's palatable for a large organization, but they all, they all want to figure out how to get there. And, you know, we're really focused on, you know, whether it be bimodal or working with their existing tools or scaling up to the portfolio with safe or whatever it is, we're really focused on helping meet them where they're at and get them over that hump. Um, yeah. And we believe, we believe that agility is, is the way to go. We actually believe that, um, you know, even the agile space will mature into something else um, over time um, that, you know, it's definitely going that direction, not the, not the opposite, you know, faster, more automated um, is absolutely the way the world's going to go. I'm glad that you said that. Cause I feel like that we're, I feel like we're in a period of transition now where, I mean, with the advent of things like safe, it was like, Oh, we need an answer or, or dad or less. We need a better answer for the enterprise level. And as things like safe continue to evolve and change, it's almost like, by trying to answer the question, it's generated new questions that maybe what we have right now, maybe that's not the answer yet, but we're at least asking better questions that will get us to whatever comes next. It'll hopefully exactly. Yeah. Efficient. And if we're, if, if we're all agile at heart, we'll, we'll iterate on our own agile method fast enough to keep up with it. Right. So. Yeah. Cool. So, and if so people are listening and, and they want to find out more about agilecraft, they can go to uh, agilecraft.com. Yeah, absolutely. Love, love to hear from anybody out there who, uh, who wants to talk scaling agile or, or bimodal. So best way to find me is just Steve at Agilecraft or on Twitter. Uh, I think we're the Agilecraft on Twitter. Cool. All right. Thank you. I really appreciate you talking to me about this stuff. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Cool. Thanks. All right, so that was Steve Elliott from AgileCraft, and next up is Dennis Stevens from Leading Agile. Hi, this is Dave Pryor, back with another podcast. This one's going to focus entirely on bimodal. Um, Dennis Stevens has joined me for the for the afternoon for the podcast, and, and I'm really excited to have Dennis here. Um, just to be totally open about this, Dennis and I do work together, but the reason that I have asked him 
to participate in this discussion with me is because when we first started to talk about bimodal, one, I had trouble finding people that I could talk to about it. And two, when I did, when Dennis and I started to talk about it, it, it instantly escalated into this massive almost argument about what these different things meant. And there was a lot of kind of banging back and forth. It turns out we're fairly closely aligned, but, um, but I'm, I'm excited to have this conversation today. So Dennis, thank you for taking time out of your afternoon. Yeah, Dave, um, I'm looking forward to the conversation. And I'm glad you finally saw the light <laughs> on where these concepts come together. Yes, I am completely in compliance now. <laughs> so can you just introduce yourself really quickly to the folks who may not be familiar with you? Sure. Well, I'm currently the chief operating officer at Leading Agile, one of the founders of it. Um, so we're in the process of putting this in organizations all the time, helping them transform to where they need to be. Uh, my history is I've been building software since the mid-80s. Um, uh, I've been very involved in PMI and the Project Management Institute. I helped build OPM 3, second edition. I was the vice chair that helped write the software extension of the PMBOK, and I was on the core team that helped develop the PMI ACP. Um, but I've also been very active, actually, using lean and agile practices to build software and organizations for, you know, 30 years now. Cool. All right. So you're deeply schooled in both areas. And... And we're going to talk about bimodal, which I think just to start out with things we agree with, bimodal comes from the idea came out of Gartner last year, November of 2014-ish, yep. when they first yep. started to publish it. So how would you describe bimodal? So bimodal is the concept that inside of organizations, there's a need for uh, the ability to move software at different rates or launch products at different rates, even at that. Um so there's some things that need to move very, very fast and be very responsive to the organization. There's some things that it makes an awful lot of sense to be stable and steady and don't need to move as fast. So within an organization, you've got to build the capability to build software fast, sort of mode one, very respon- or mode two, very, very responsive, very agile, and you've got to do it uh, in a very, very stable, long-running sort of fashion. Um, which is probably not something that exists in most organizations today. Okay. So if I'm a traditional organization that's dipping their toes into the agile pool, they see all the innovative stuff, you know, or maybe they want to stand up an innovation center. They see all the things that fail fast and learn can, can offer, but then they look at some of the keep the lights on stuff or maybe, you know, worldwide deployments of server upgrades and things like that. And they're thinking, why the, why the hell would we want to do agile for this? Like, why does it make sense? Well, there's a ton of reasons why things can't move fast in organizations, or you wouldn't want them to move fast. And, and it's not always um, just the need inside of the organization to deploy servers or, or slow stuff. It could be something like, um, my customers are banking customers, and every time we make a change to our systems, we have to go through a new audit. So compliance, training, everything around that requires us to not actually update stuff every single day. Okay, so so a few years, I would say, maybe this is just my opinion, but a couple years ago, it was like there was this push to take an entire organization over to Agile. You would have to bring the whole thing, but now it seems like there's this acknowledgement of the fact that, you know what, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that that's going to be awesome for, but there's some stuff that it's like, ah, it's just going to make it harder, like yeah. what you just described. It's just going to get in the way. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of conditions that have to exist for us to move fast. Okay. All of all of those incur a cost, and some of them aren't even desirable. So, so is it a maturation of our understanding of how this stuff works to say that now 
there's at least the beginnings of an acknowledgement of the fact that maybe you do have to have both, at least for some period of time? I'll tell you, it's, it's an interesting assumption, Dave, that, that um, people were trying to move everything to Agile. I think that most of the enterprises that I've been around never, ever tried to move everything to Agile. They probably weren't thoughtful about what they did need to move to Agile. Okay. But I think most organizations have continued to operate in sort of a, a matrix, big upfront planning, SDLC-driven model while doing Agile in pockets. I think very few people have actually tried to do bimodal effectively, but I think okay. very few people have tried to move the whole organization to Agile. All right. So before we dig into the bimodal and the different aspects of it, I want to just, because one of the things that popped into my head when I first started looking at this stuff, and it keeps coming back to me, is if I'm a big organization, what I just heard was, it's okay to have some Agile and some of the stuff be the old way. Like, we don't have to change everything. Which I'm not saying that's necessarily true, but do you think that, that that's sort of a message that people might interpret from that? I think that's what people are hearing, but okay. I think that's not the intent. Cool. All right. So what is the intent then? If you look at, so I wrote a blog post about um, two years ago. It's called Agile versus Waterfall. Um, it's out on the leading Agile website. And one of the things I talked about there are the different aspects of what we mean when we talk about Agile versus Waterfall. Um, there's an interesting thing that I think people think waterfall means um, really late feedback and matrixed utilization-driven teams. Okay. Um, I think if you look at the work that we did around the Agile extension to the PMBOK and my experience and everything that IEEE's ever published or SEI has, nobody thinks that matrix teams are the right way to build software. Um, so if, if people are Building software with late feedback and matrix teams, that's just bad process. When you say nobody, you mean none of the thought leaders and none of the people doing research and proving. This is like saying that nobody believes multitasking works. Yeah, that's right. That's because right. people yeah. do it all the time. It, yeah. It just, yeah, that's okay. right. That's right. We see it all the time in organizations. Okay. But, but, but the thought leaders and the, the people doing research and the people actually that understand this realize that you can't build software in high utilization driven, multitasking, okay. functionally siloed organizations. Okay. All right. So there's a lot of people that that know that this stuff doesn't work, but people are still sort of running by the pool with scissors in their mouth anyway. And and we're saying, stop, but they're still hearing it's okay to do that in some respect. Well, I think that the I think that the literature and the language, if you go read the Gartner papers in detail, I think it pretty clearly I mean they talk about a mode zero, a mode right. one, and a mode two. I think when you go read the papers from the uh, vendors or from consultants or people that have built a practice around helping the old model be successful, they're sort of blending mode one with traditional. Okay. You, you and I have gone back and forth on mode one and traditional are not the same thing. Well, yeah. So this is, a, this. I mean, to me, the first thing when I started to research the bimodal stuff that seemed like this was going to be crack for the businesses of the world was you can't have both in the same house and they can live together. I'm like, oh, well, that's, that's, there's the opening right there. What I took it to, to mean was what they describe as mode zero. Like if you're an organization, whatever you're doing now on the traditional side or the long range side, that's mode zero. That doesn't mean you can keep doing that. If you want to have the fail fast and learn components and the longer range stuff in the house together, it's not just that you have to change some of what you're doing over to a more agile or innovation centric approach. You've also got to change your traditional approach to go from mode zero to mode one, which would be a longer range approach that is suited to work alongside something that is more fail fast and learn. Yeah, I think that we agree on that. Okay. 
All right, good. <laughs> I thought we were so so how do we help people understand or get past this point where they might be like taking a quick high level look at bimodal and thinking, oh cool, I can keep doing what I'm doing and I can still be agile and it's not going to be painful now because I don't have to change. Yeah. So this is that sort of getting into the list of conditions that have to exist for the fast feedback cycle stuff to work. Um, and if you're not building teams, so whether you're working at mode one or mode zero, you've got to have stable teams that can build software and provide feedback frequently. Um, the amount of upfront planning you do and how you leverage that feedback is different in mode one than it is at mode two. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. But to even get to teams in the first place, you've got to address all the structural challenges and the governance challenges with how you fund projects and fund teams and how you structure your organization. That stuff has to be fixed whether you're mode one or mode two. That's sort of the first step. Then you've got to change your metrics and your incentive or success sort of things to figure out how we, we measure the progress and success in an organization and how we reward people to get those teams to actually work together. So a lot of times, fixing that is a long it's a long, complicated process. There's political and power things that have to be addressed in an organization to get this in place. So those are just like the easy things to change, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> then, then you get to all of your legal and compliance and customer-facing things. If you, have a, if you have a mainframe that's interfacing with the Federal Reserve Bank to process ACH transactions between banks, um, there's some constraints there that you have to operate within and be able to respect. So you have to be able to manage that longer term stuff. If you have technical and architectural constraints, you're not going to be able to move things fast, even if you want to make them move fast, you'll address those challenges. And then there's all of your customer and deployment and support issues around stuff that you want to move fast. So um, to get from mode zero to mode one, you've got to fix that first list of things. To get to mode two, you've got to fix that whole second list so, of things. All right. So I just want to say this back. So let's say I'm a traditional company with lots of matrix teams and all kinds of weird old dysfunctional practices. And somebody's just come in and said, yeah, we're going to take you agile. It's going to be horribly painful. You got to change everything you do. It's completely switching religions. You're joining a new church. It's going to be very difficult. Or you have this other option now. Um, we cannot let you join that other way of working until you completely change everything you do, abandon what you know and start to do stuff in a completely different way. And then we'll teach you how to do the really hard part. Yeah. So, so pragmatically, <laughs> there's painful some different... no matter what. Yeah. You, you have three options, right? Okay. One option is to continue to operate like you've always operated. Right. And hope that things don't get worse. I just, I just think unless, unless you don't have fast pace of change, things taking place. Um, that's someone's not going to be a successful pattern. Yeah, someone's yep. going to come drink your milkshake and you're going to be sitting there pretending that you're okay with the pain you're comfortable with. Yeah. The second pattern is move everything over to this, what we call Basecamp 4 and 5, really fast changeability. Um, the cost to do that, the challenges with doing that are just insurmountable. And in fact, it won't solve some of your problems when you're trying to deal with the long feedback things that are architecturally constrained or contractually constrained or compliance constrained. Right. Um, so the third option is figure out what parts of the organization need to move to mode one, what parts of the organization need to move to mode two, 
And then what are your costs to move them there? I think there's a very pragmatic call for some parts of an organization just staying in mode zero work because the economic cost oh. of shifting them okay. is greater than the cost of moving the other two pieces. So then you might have mode zero, mode one, and mode two. Pragmatically, at some point in your transition, you're going to have all three of them. Okay. And, and so... I just want to back up a little bit on this because I think this is a really important point that you just made. When we talk about making changes, people will say, oh, well, you know, we want to do this, we want to do that, it's important to go agile, or it's important to do whatever. But there is a point at which an organization has to realize, you know what, the, the juice isn't really worth the squeeze on that one. Like the, the, this thing here, this piece may be big and ugly and clumsy, but the cost to make it not ugly and clumsy isn't really worth the result for us. At yeah. least right now. Yeah, but now what becomes really interesting in that statement and the way of thinking about it, Dave, is you can't go communicate it to the business that way. You have to make mode one be sexy and desirable. You're going to be so robust. You own our systems of record. You own the, the heavy lifting in our systems of differentiation. Um, you guys are going to hold it together and be completely reliable, and it's always going to work 100% of the time. That has to be sexy for an organization okay. to build good practice around it. Does that make sense? It does. It does. I guess it's just, I always think of the old traditional organizations like this big fat guy on the couch who's watching the Olympics or whatever, eating a bag of chips, and he wants to run a marathon. Yep. It's going to be really hard to get to this state where, where he wants to run a marathon. But how do you make the pain of working out in the gym sexy? Well, so, th so that's a different question. It's creating the urgency for change. Just the market's going to create that. Right. Right. But so it still is going to be uncomfortable. And you, yeah. you were just explaining we have to make it something they want to do anyway. We have to make it be something that people want to participate in. Right. And we have to make it be something that organizations want to end up at. So, you know, the modeling that, that we've used in the past is understanding the capabilities, the feature sets, the products that you offer, and graphing them, sort of plotting and finding out what really does need to move fast, what doesn't have to move as fast. And then coming up with what's the investment to move them from, from where they are to where they need to be. Okay. Now, do you think that organizations right now have the self-awareness or, I don't know, that, that the sort of distance enough from looking at the, at the forest to be able to see what stuff needs to change and what stuff should really stay the same? Or, or are they going to be responding based on what seems like it's going to be just really uncomfortable? Yeah. Well, obviously, I think you need a good consultant to come in and guide you through that process. <laughs> there we go. All right. um, no, I, I think, mean, so that aside. Yeah. I believe that when you, when you talk about it this way with executives and managers at, that have a certain level of accountability. Yeah. And you explain the economic models of change. Where do you need to be? What does it cost to get there? Most of the time at a certain level, we can get people to agree on what the, what the different parts of the organization need to look like. Okay. The, the challenge then is if you have something that we just go, we have a client uh, in the Midwest. Okay. That client has 2,000 SharePoint applications that they're supporting. Okay. They have 10 developers that support those 2,000 legacy SharePoint applications. Okay. We're not going to form stable cross-functional teams with everything they need to deliver. There's going to be 10 developers and a tester. Right. And they're just going to continue to operate in mode zero, sort of fighting the fires, because to fix that problem would require too much architectural lift, and there's not enough value to the business to do it. So we've got to go 
make that be an exciting mission for that group of people. Well, I think, that, and there's another piece to it too. It doesn't, it also has to be not just maybe exciting, but it has to be okay. It's not like you guys are lame because you're not agile or you're not, you know, cross-functional. They're doing what the right thing for the company is. That's right. It's a smart decision. And, and I think helping people be okay with making smart decisions, getting them the information, helping them make those choices, and then being okay with them, that's a really big deal. Yeah, mission and purpose, right? Yeah, because people still suffer from the shame of not being agile all the time. That's right. So when you're having these conversations with people in an organization, I'm assuming that, that they're fairly high up, like they're like C-level or, or something like that, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So we're having the conversation at that level, but we're actually never having the mode zero, mode one, mode two conversation. We have a model that we've been using for the last four or five years around base camps. Okay. And, and the base camps cover the same sort of ground, but make it um, a little bit more actionable. Than, a little more accessible. A little bit more accessible. And so, so if you're not familiar, I'll, I'll include a link and everything to the Basecamp model. So if people want to check that out, um, they can. But, and, and one of the things that I think is great about that is that there are, on the road from wherever you are to whatever Nirvana-like state of Agile you want to get, there are stopping points along the way. So do you, one of the things that I think I can see both of these approaches, you know, whether you're talking about bimodal or the base camps is, do you get a sense of relief kind of coming in waves off of the executives when you tell them like, you don't have to completely go live on the agile commune with Dennis Hopper from apocalypse now. And it doesn't have to be like that. You can get halfway there. And if that's working, then we're cool. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that having a pragmatic and safe roadmap for transformation that resonates with them and makes sense. These executives tend to be feeling the need to do something faster, but quite can't, can't quite put their finger on how to get there or what that really looks like. When you can walk in and draw a picture, not just what the end state looks like, but what it takes to get there, even though it's expensive and painful, they know they have to make these changes. And they're, because it's clear and pragmatic and actionable, they do. They go, okay, that's what we got to do. We'll go bite that off and go make that happen. Okay. What are the, the hardest parts for an organization that wants to go from a traditional model to something that is bimodal? Um, what are the, the biggest pain points? I mean, obviously change is going to be painful, but in terms of syncing up these different parts of the company, what's the hardest part of that? It's the politics of it. And I think it's the, nobody wants to be the manager that has the leftover stepchild. Okay. So it's one that wasn't allowed to switch or was told you stay the way. Yeah, or that had to switch to mode one. Okay. Because mode one sounds not sexy. You know, I was in the Marine Corps. Marine Corps is a lot of pride, Semper Fidelis, all that sort of stuff. I was in motor transport and logistics in the Marine Corps. And those aren't sexy, but man, we had a whole lot of pride around what we did and we did our jobs awesomely. Um, If you can't make the outcome sexy, you're not going to have good people there. Cool. All right, Dennis, thank you very much for taking time to talk about this with me. And if people want to find you, they can go to Leading Agile. They want to learn more about you know, the, the base camps. I'll include a link to that, but um, got the blog and things like that. I will also include a link to your, your blog post on it. What about Twitter, Facebook, anything like that? LinkedIn, where can folks find you? Yeah, so I'm Dennis Stevens on Twitter. Okay. Um, and Facebook is the Leading Agile Facebook page. Um, and you can go to leadingagile.com for our website. Cool. All right. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. And happy new year. Happy new year to you, Dave. 
All right, that's the end of the second episode of Drunken PM Radio. So I'd like to thank Steve Elliott and Dennis Stevens for taking time out for the interviews. I'd also like to thank projectsatwork.com for the support of the podcast. If you've got any feedback, you can reach me at drunkenpm at gmail.com or on Twitter at drunkenpm. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 